Uh, I think that the um, acidity of the stomach is... Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. You know, the first line of defense... From our studios in Malibu, California. ...that the body has uh, for the immune system. Welcome back to the Malibu Studios. It's host Brad Kearns here with Mark Sisson. And the questions are piling up again as we mix in some other fun stuff. And we're trying to um, trying to respect the people in chronological order, but then all these new questions come up. And so if you don't hear your question answered on the air, we do want to say that we really appreciate it. We talk through some of these off offline and you know try to hit those topics and try to grasp, you know, maybe six questions together. So here's one that's um, been a hot topic lately about resistant starch from Stu in Victorville writes in. It says, Dear Mark, thank you for talking about all the benefits of resistant starch. And I know you mentioned a green banana, which seems like an easy way to integrate some resistant starch into my diet. Uh, first, is it okay to slather it with some peanut butter or almond butter? And second, if you consider that a yellow banana, a ripe banana, has 25 grams of carbs and probably minimal resistant starch, would a green banana consequently have very few carbohydrate grams and thus very few calories? Great question. And so the first part of that is, can you slather it with uh, peanut butter or some other thing? Absolutely. Um, it's, it's a good idea. Let's see, green bananas and peanut butter. I'm not sure I have had that yet, but I'm open to just about anything. Uh, yeah, so if the green banana has uh, mo- more resistant starch and those starches haven't yet converted enzymatically into sugars, which is basically what happens in the ripening process, then uh, that green banana will not have as many calories as a uh, ripe banana, as a yellow banana. The other part of that question, which I thought um, we talked offline, was uh, what does that apply to other fruit? And, and interestingly, yesterday, uh, I had uh, my housekeeper cut up a watermelon, and about halfway through the afternoon, I thought, I'll have a couple of pieces of this watermelon, and I just was having a hankering. It's been 100 degrees in Malibu the last couple of days, so watermelon is a, you know, is a summertime fruit. And I started to eat this watermelon, and I, re- and I realized it didn't taste so much like a watermelon as it tasted like a carrot. And the reason was that the watermelon hadn't yet converted to the sugars. I, and I, re- I really gave that some thought. I thought, well, wait a minute. So here I am. I'm probably eating more resistant starch, prebiotic fibers, you know, fermentable fibers in this watermelon than I normally would in a ripe watermelon. Does that apply to nectarines and to peaches and to plums and to apples? And it may well, in fact, apply just to those. Now, you know, if you are a person who's more inclined to eat sour apples, remember in the old days, we kids would, you'd hear stories of kids who ate unripe apples, green apples that were Macintosh and were supposed to later on in the season be turning red, and they'd get a stomach ache from sour apples, probably because of the fermentable fibers and the resistant starch and the pectin and all the things that hadn't yet converted into the sugars, which are much more easily digested. So it may be, if that's your, you know, if, if that strikes your fancy, that unripe fruit might be a, a decent source of these fermentable fibers and resistant starch. Uh, so I looked it up here, and it's 6 grams of carbs in a green banana versus 25 in a yellow. So I guess maybe in, if it's if it's greenish-yellowish, you're splitting the difference, you're getting some resistant starch, and you're also uh, bringing it down with a little better taste. Yeah, I mean, the other thing about resist, about green bananas is they taste awfully uh, bitter and chalky to me. So uh, maybe that's where the peanut butter on uh, slathered on it comes in. Great idea. Thank you, Stu. And let's have some people try that and write in, see what it tastes like. Uh, here's a question from Samuel. Hi, Mark and Brad. This is Sam from South Florida. 
What is the role of adequate stomach acid in having a uh, healthy intestinal flora? And how can a person improve their stomach acidity um, without taking drugs from the gastroenterologist? Thank you. Um, great question. Uh, I think that the um, acidity of the stomach is you know, the first line of defense, really, that the body has uh, for the immune system. There are uh, H. pylori uh, are these uh, bacteria that live in the stomach, and while they've gotten a bad reputation over the years for being the uh, a problem with ulcers, they're also important in the health of, uh, of uh, the gut, and particularly in a healthy person. And these H. pylori live in the very, very uh, low pH of the stomach. So the high acid environment of the stomach is, is extremely important uh, from an immune system point of view because it will kill the pathogenic bacteria that try to get through there. Um, and you, you, you know, we, if we look at how some of these bacteria and germs get into our system uh, through the nose or through the mouth, uh, all that stuff, even the nose, drains into the stomach. If, if you've uh, you know, ever had a runny nose or whatever, you know, you're swallowing that stuff into your stomach if you're not spitting it out. And it's the stomach is where uh, that first line of defense where the stomach acids can kill some of that bacteria before it uh, gets further on down the, the GI tract. You know, what can you do to improve your stomach acidity? Over time, uh, age tends to um, raise the pH, that is, decrease the acidity of the stomach, and that's where some digestive problems come in. Uh, it is this low stomach pH that uh, is important in uh, the appropriate digestion of foods and particularly proteins, which are start to get broken down by this acid environment in the stomach. What can you do? I mean, I, one of the ironies of modern medicine is this prescribing of proton pump inhibitors, PPI pills, uh, the purple pill, uh, that reduce stomach acid. And I think it's just a travesty that in, in so many cases, people who probably ought to be improving their stomach acid so that they can uh, uh, digest food better and improve their immune system are actually taking these drugs to to reduce the acidity, uh, to increase the pH. Uh, these proton pump, these little proton pumps are what spew out these ions that reduce at, uh, the pH and, and increase the acidity. So you're turning that mechanism off, that all-important mechanism, which then ironically causes the digestive process to slow down. So sp food has to spend more time in the stomach uh, before it can... Uh, pass into the upper part of the small intestine. And with more time in the stomach, sometimes it backs up into the esophagus and we get this uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease, this GERD or heartburn as people have referred to it over, over the years. Uh, I know I had a lot of GERD when I was in my carbohydrate days, in my whole wheat days, because uh, I was that sensitive to uh, the effects of, of wheat in particular. Foods that you can uh, consume to improve uh, this, the pH of the stomach, I don't think there are any that I would, uh, off the top of my head, that would do that. I think the best thing you can do is just to reduce the grains, the intake of grains, um, you know, to eat natural foods and unprocessed foods. I would try to stay away from these proton pump inhibitors, uh, if, if at all possible. Uh, some people have said that using apple cider vinegar, a tablespoon of apple cider vinegar every day, which is, which is a form of acid, uh, as a supplement can assist with digestion. So that's always something to try. And uh, then take a good probiotic. Uh, if, you wanna, if you wanna maintain that integrity of the gut flora, 
I would take a probiotic that has uh, some spore form bacteria. So look for coagulans, uh, B coagulans, or B subtilis. Uh, those are the two uh, major ones uh, that I would that I look look for. Yeah, but uh, recognizing fully that uh, really it's important to take care of your gut, not just from a digestive point of view, but from an immune point of view. Uh, I think on one of your travel posts, travel tips, you mentioned taking the supplement hydrochloric acid for getting ready for foreign uh, agents in the stomach when you're in a foreign country. Yeah, there are also some supplements, some digestive aids you can take that that have. Uh, betaine, HCL, or papain, or some of the enzymes that you can add uh, that uh, you take them with food so that you're going to assist yourself in digesting that meal. Yeah, those would be added to this. But just in terms of improving stomach acid, uh, I don't think there are any foods that you can take. No magical tricks. Sorry. Just be healthy and eat primally. Let's hear it from Armin. Hi, this is Armin. Um, I've been following a primal lifestyle for eight to 10 months and I've seen some really good improvements when it comes to weight and overall fitness and energy levels and just overall health and well-being and I was just wondering how do you know intuitively and also from a measurement perspective how good of a fat burner or ketone burner you have become thanks for a quick tip on that and I love your stuff thanks so much great question Armin so the the first sign that I look for in people who have uh, undergone this uh, transition from being a sugar burner to a fat burner and uh, becoming good at ketosis is the ability to skip a meal and not have it ruin their day. So if you can can go from breakfast to dinner without any mood swings, without any drops in blood sugar, without uh, feeling like you need to rip someone's head off if you don't get a a bagel in in your gut soon... Uh, that's one of the first indicators that you are good at burning fat, that you are not so dependent on a fresh supply of glucose or carbohydrate every three hours, as was the, the mantra for so long in, in the fitness and health world. Um, yeah, as recently as 10 or 15 years ago, people would say, oh, you, got, you have to have uh, five or six small meals spread evenly throughout the day and carry a Tupperware thing around with you and have a little bit of protein and some carbohydrate at every meal. Otherwise, your blood sugar will drop, you'll go into starvation mode, and you'll cannibalize your muscle tissue. Well, if you're a sugar burner, that's probably what's going to happen because you haven't become good at burning fat, and so you run out of glucose and or you, you deplete your glycogen, and your body looks to its muscle tissue as a source of, uh, of raw materials to make new glucose to feed the brain. When you become good at burning fat and when you become keto-adapted, uh, that doesn't happen anymore. So the first, this first sign is, yeah, I can go a meal or two without eating and not have it ruin my day, and I'm very confident that my energy levels are up where they need to be. I could even go to the gym and do a workout and, again, not feel like I'm going to faint or pass out. That's the real sign that you become good at this, uh, at this process of burning fat. You know, some people say, well, what about keto sticks? And, and you know, I'm going to uh, pee on a keto stick and see if, I've, if I can generate a purple color and and, and show uh, the millimoles of, uh, of uh, you know, BHB in my system, well, that's, you know, that's not going to be necessarily indicative of how good you are because if you become really good at burning ketones, you don't have an excess of them around being excreted in the urine. They'll be in the blood, but you won't be excreting them in the urine because your body will be using them. You've, you will have built that 
ketone burning machinery to the extent that when you do generate excessive ketones, they get burned up and they don't get excreted. It's a good thing. Uh, so that's an important distinction because when you, you use the term in the 21-day transformation, ketone burning, ketone burning beast, this and that. And then when you say ketosis, literally, doesn't that have a, a literal definition that you're accumulating them in the bloodstream faster than you're burning them? Yeah, it's uh, you're well. You're accumulating in the urine faster than you're burning them. Uh, so one of the one of the notions of ketosis is this uh, yeah this accumulation of of ketone bodies. And unless you're a type one diabetic having a, a crisis, you will not generate them to the point that it will be dangerous because at some high level of ketone production, ketones cause the release of insulin. And insulin, you you know, if you're a diabetic, a type one diabetic, you can't. Uh, produce insulin, and so the ketones keep building, 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 building. Mm-hmm. But the, at the point at which you start producing enough ketones that your that your pancreas secretes insulin, it shuts off the ketosis and stabilizes it at a level that's very safe for a lot of people. So yeah, I I like to pref- I prefer to um, to refer to all of what we're doing as keto adapted or you know ketogenesis, and the term ketosis is sort of you know inappropriately used here because. You're not, you know, the, the, the notion that you are producing an excess of ketones and, and pissing them out would be more appropriate for a person who was a carbohydrate burner and who hadn't built the metabolic machinery to, build, to, to burn fats and ketones. And so this carbohydrate burner decides he's going to go down to the ashram and he's going to fast for three days and not eat anything. Well, meanwhile, his brain or her brain hasn't learned how to burn ketones. The muscles really haven't built a metabolic machinery to burn ketones. They haven't gone through the metabolic changes, the mitochondrial biogenesis in the muscles that improves the, the throughput of fats and ketones. And as a result, they build up an excess, excess of ketones in the bloodstream, which are then excreted in the breath, which smells sweet and sometimes like uh, overripe apples, uh, or they excrete it in the, in the piss, in the urine, which shows up as uh, purple on a, on a keto stick. But that's not necessarily a good thing because they haven't mm-hmm. they haven't built this metabolic machinery to be able to utilize this incredibly wonderful fuel that they are now producing as a result of their choosing not to eat for two or three days in a row and not having built the not having become fat adapted or keto adapted to make that a pleasant task. So you can put your sticks away and just simply determine if you're hungry after a uh, after a workout or in the hours after and and no cheating here folks remember in bridesmaids when Kristen Wiig was uh, they're all suffering from food poisoning she says no I'm fine I'm, I'm actually starving right now and they they made her eat a cookie so just really you know be honest with yourself and and notice how long it takes until you get those sensations of hunger and and on a on a side note um, a lot of people are asking how do I start out intermittent fasting wait till you get hungry in the morning and then eat at that point. Yep. No, that's the best way. If you have become uh, indoctrinated into the primal blueprint style of eating and you've, you've reduced the sugars and you reduced the refined carbohydrates and in many cases all of the grains, uh, you find that you've reduced your total carb intake now down to well below 150 grams a day. Because it's it, if you have in fact truly gotten rid of all of those foods and you're still depending on green vegetables and salads and a little bit of fruit – it's going to, you're going to be hard-pressed to, to accumulate up to 150 grams of carbs a day. So you will be almost of necessity creating this metabolic machinery that's better at burning fat and that's pretty good at accessing ketones. Now when you drop it down below 100 grams a day, now you get into that real sweet spot between 50 and 100 grams a day where you're not even necessarily in ketosis, but you're still prompting the building of those 
of those metabolic pathways to be really good and efficient at burning fat, your own stored body fat, and the ketones that are thrown off or generated as a result of that. Uh, so just to follow up on, on the other podcast, that question about eating the berries and falling out of ketosis, is it okay to dip in and out of whatever metabolic state as you're following the primal lifestyle and Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, ketosis is just one metabolic state that's typically uh, a a huge survival benefit for humans over the the millennia, over millions of years, where we developed this ability, this skill to go three or four days without eating because there was no food around uh, and to not have it affect our demeanor, our muscle mass, our, our energy output, our levels. That's the that's the real beauty of ketosis. I don't think it was ever intended that humans spend a lifetime in ketosis. In fact, I don't recommend that at all. But I think it's kind of uh, instructive to get into ketosis for le- periods of time, um, days or weeks, maybe months, if if you're uh, if you've got some um, specific metabolic issues you're trying to address. Uh, but then to come out of ketosis, you don't have to go completely the opposite track and take in a thousand grams of carbs a day. In fact, it'd probably be very counterproductive to do so. But to come out of ketosis with 150 to 300 grams of carbs a day for periods of time, look, you've still built that metabolic machinery. So unlike the sugar burner, who never gets a chance to upregulate the the mitochondria in the muscles, because there's so much sugar available all the time that the, the muscles, the mitochondria in the muscles, they don't really need to burn that much fat. They don't need to upregulate the enzyme systems. So there is very little of this mitochondrial biogenesis going on. For people who are um, fat adapted and keto adapted, they have built this metabolic machinery because of the lack of carbohydrate. The drop in carbohydrate intake has forced the body to increase the amount of uh, uh, the mitochondrial biogenesis going on, those powerhouses of the cell. And as a result, they, they upregulate this machinery. Now, the body doesn't like to make changes it doesn't have to make. So the, the sugar burner never makes that change to build a metabolic machinery. On the other hand, once the metabolic machinery has been built, it doesn't go away the next day if you go, if you go off out of ketosis. It stays there. So you can stay out of ketosis for days or weeks at a time, and you'll still retain some of the beneficial effects of the time you did spend in ketosis. That metabolic machinery kind of sticks around for a while. Now, if for the rest of the, the next you know, six months or whatever, all you do is eat carbohydrates and go back to your old way of eating. Eventually, you lose that metabolic machinery because the body doesn't keep anything around that it doesn't absolutely need. Uh, it atrophies, that machinery atrophies. Uh, so that's that's the bad news of getting really, you know, lean, rip, fit on the primal blueprint and then going off the wagon. If you resort to your old ways, then your body resorts to its old ways. The answer to the question is there's no real problem with going in and out of ketosis once you've built that metabolic machinery. Sounds similar to building your fitness. And if you sit around and get out of shape for a month, that's the way it goes. But you can always get it back by regaining your momentum. Well, we talk about muscle memory. It's really interesting that a lot of times it's easier to get back into shape if you've been in shape. And it may be that once you've, you know, gone into ketosis and you've built that metabolic machinery, when you go out and you, you know, go off the wagon for a while, it's probably easier to get back into it. How about one more question, Mark? This is from Emily Christopher in Mequon, Wisconsin. And she writes, Dear Mark, I noticed the recent news from Chris Kresser and Stefan Guyane that legumes are now being validated as part of the ancestral diet, that cooking them neutralizes any concerns about lectins, and thus it seems they have gained paleo approval. 
In your books, you categorize legumes as less offensive than grains, but still unnecessary due to their high carbohydrate content. Is this still your position, and can you elaborate? Yeah, I, I think that there is a shift in some of the paleo world away from legumes, although I'd say that uh, my understanding from Lauren Cordain and Rob Wolf is that they're still pretty down on the legumes. As you know, I try to be as inclusive as possible with the foods in the Primal Blueprint, so if there's a reason uh, to be eating these foods and they're not, uh, there's not a lot of good research suggesting that we should absolutely not be eating this food, then I include it in the Primal Blueprint. I still am suspect of legumes uh, for, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm including more of them in my own diet, but not on a huge scale. I just don't avoid them like the plague anymore. Um, if I'm having a bowl of uh, bison chili and it's got a couple of beans in it, I don't set those beans aside. I, I eat them with gusto. I do think that the Weston A. Price version of, of, of sprouting, uh, excuse me, soaking and preparing legumes in a fashion that denatures their poisons uh, is an interesting gives an interesting historical perspective, but the reality still is that legumes, uh, almost to a to a point when they're not prepared, contain some toxins. I mean, one of the most toxic uh, substances on the face of the planet, ricin, is derived from the castor bean, which is legume. So they do have their defenses. Uh, I suggest that maybe the lectins aren't so horrendous on a sporadic basis, and that maybe the big issue with these beans is the uh, fructo-oligosaccharides that are undigestible, the cellulose, the, the fermentable fibers that cause the gas in people, uh, that if you have your digestive tract uh, in good health, if you've got your gut biome working, you know, and you are able to, to and you enjoy the taste of uh, these sorts of uh, foods, the legumes, there may be some of these legumes that are, that are appropriate for you the way some forms of dairy are appropriate for people who are lactose tolerant. Try it out. See what you think. If you see some hummus, go for it with your nice fresh vegetables. Uh, but maybe don't make a special effort. Just like uh, the 21-day transformation, I think the, the point was extracted there out of context. But the main thing is, if you're trying to lose excess body fat, your first and foremost priority is to look at that carbohydrate curve. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really the starting point. Mark, thanks for tackling those questions hard today. We're getting through it. We so much appreciate the interactive nature of the podcast with you guys really putting up some thoughtful questions and requests for topics to cover. So again, host Brad Kern signing off for the Primal Blueprint podcast with Mark Sisson. See you next time. Hey, podcasts are great, but how about a life-changing weekend at PrimalCon? Coming up is the historic occasion of our fifth annual event in Oxnard that's on the beach in Southern California at the amazing Embassy Suites Mandalay Beach Resort. It's about an hour north of Los Angeles, one of the best-kept secrets in Southern California, this resort right on the sands of the beautiful beach town of Oxnard. And we have an amazing park there, an expanse of grass and all kinds of fun stuff to play on. So we'll be spending a fun weekend outdoors with an awesome slate of presenters talking and presenting on all manner of physical activity, diet, health, nutrition, 
posture and movement mechanics, all kinds of topics covered. So you'll get a great education from the world's leading experts, but we'll also have a ton of fun and excitement. Of course, we're going to play the annual Survivor Team Challenge, just like you see on TV, except this one is more fun, more challenging. It includes brain teasers and good team strategy challenges. We're also going to have, of course, the world-famous Primal Con Ocean Plunge slash Jacuzzi Sprint. So you're going to run into the pretty cold ocean, guaranteed. And then about a two-minute sprint where we take over the entire jacuzzi at the Mandalay Beach Resort. People look at us like we're crazy, but it's tons of fun. And then we're going to dine on the all-time fabulous Primal Con food, which you can see all kinds of pictures of on the website. So visit PrimalBlueprint.com. Look for the Primal Con link. You can see pictures and videos chronicling the wonderful times we've had in Oxnard over the past four years. And we certainly hope you can join us for the fifth annual Primal Con Oxnard, September 25th through 28th, 2014.